We're going to be in Romans chapter 8 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under one of the chairs around you, um, or you can open up an app on your phone or something like that. If you're taking notes, the title is Blessed Assurance, Blessed Assurance, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. Why don't we pray before we get started? God, we come before you, and we are thankful for all the work that you're doing in our midst and the way that you are transforming us and and growing us personally in our faith and growing us as a congregation uh, in our faith and in our unity together and, uh, and even adding to our church, and we're thankful for that as well. Um, but God, we pray that you would continue that sanctifying work in us this morning through your word, and we pray that you would bless our time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been in Romans since right after Easter, and we have finally arrived at Romans chapter 8 in Paul's letter. Chapter 8, for most of you, um, well, without doubt, it's one of the best known, most loved chapters in all of Scripture. And maybe it is for you. I know for me, it's probably in the top three uh, of my favorite chapters in the Bible. But I thought about that, and maybe I wonder if you have ever stopped to wonder, what is it about Romans 8 that makes it so loved, so cherished, so known? I wonder, or I wonder if you have wondered, what is the purpose behind this? What makes it so special? And I think, as I thought about it this last week, I think the answer is because of its primary theme. Do you know what the theme of chapter 8 is? Maybe you've thought about it, maybe you haven't. I will tell you, the theme of chapter 8 is the theme of our Christian assurance, which made me think that's why we love it so much. Because in a world of change and uncertainty, assurance of anything is hard to come by, and yet we long for assurance. Think about it. If you were assured that if you tried something, you could not fail, I think most people would attempt it. If you were assured that even if you failed, you wouldn't get kicked off the team, you probably would try it. You would feel more emboldened. If you were assured that no matter what happens, no matter what risks you take, all the things that you have, that you possess, couldn't be lost or taken from you, you would be free to truly live. But we don't have this kind of assurance, at least in this world. The Christian doctrine, though, of assurance is not only the central theme of this chapter, as we'll discover, It's the reason why we love it so much, because assurance allows us to live the lives we always wanted to, but we can't apart from Christ. I've told this story before, but I'll mention it again to illustrate what I mean by this. I, I remember the night I became a Christian. I remember hearing the gospel, and suddenly my, my present life, my current situation, what I was, how I was living my life in that moment flashed before my eyes. All the things that I was putting my value in, all the things that I was pursuing and finding identity in, all the things I was working hard at experiencing and possessing suddenly in that moment appeared so temporal to me. And I realized that in that moment, I could go that night and lose everything. Everything could be lost, everything could be taken away, and I would have nothing. All the things that I was putting my value in were 
like smoke. They were vanity. They could be lost. And that's a really empty feeling to think about your life and think, man, everything could be taken away from me in a moment. But what I also realized in that moment is that if I had Christ, I could lose all of that stuff and it wouldn't matter because I had Christ and he had me and he would never let me go. No matter how many times I tried and failed or didn't try and failed by default, I was assured in that moment if I had Christ that he would not cast me away. That even if I went through seasons of my life where I wanted to throw in the towel, He would pick me and the towel up and say, no, Aaron, we're going to keep moving forward. I I had assurance, something that, again, you cannot find in this world. Friends, God hasn't assured you or me of health or wealth. He hasn't assured you that life won't be hard or challenging. In fact, he said it will for the Christian. But what he has assured you of is this, that no matter what you go through as a follower of Jesus, he is with you, he is for you, he is at work in you, perfecting you, sanctifying you, blessing you. And when this life is over, he has guaranteed for you and for me life eternal with him in his presence, where the Bible says, There is fullness of joy and pleasures evermore. No more crying, no more sickness, no more dying. This is the Christian assurance. This is what we love so much. This is what we're going to go over in Romans chapter 8, but we're not going to go over it all this week. We're just going to go over part of those assurances. So with that said, why don't we go ahead and just read verse 1 and how Paul opens this chapter. Chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's just stop there. Paul opens up this great chapter with this great gospel assurance that for those who are in Christ Jesus, meaning those who have been justified by faith, declared righteous by God on account of that faith in the righteousness of Jesus and not their own righteousness that they think they're bringing to the table, and thus have been united to Christ by that faith through His grace. He says, for those people, there is therefore now no condemnation. And before we talk about that word condemnation, I want to point out the word therefore, because this assertion in verse 1 is connected to the conversation that we've been having In chapter 7, chapter 6, chapter 5, mostly there in chapter 7, which had to do with the relationship God's people have with the written law, or what is referred to as the Mosaic law, which if, if I can just summarize it briefly, we don't have time to get into it, but Paul showed us that through the law, that though the law was given to us by God, the law was not sufficient to save us in the sense that the law lacked the power to affect in us that which it commanded of us. All it had the power to do was condemn us. And this was not because the law itself was evil or because the law itself was lacking in anything, but because we lacked something in the weakness of our flesh. This is what Paul is saying. And so as God's people stand before the law of God in their own flesh, they stand not only as guilty before that law, but condemned before that law. And this has been Paul's point all along in regard to the law. If you try and live your life 
by law in hopes that God will allow you into his heaven based on that, you're going to find yourself lacking seriously. Paul believes that the law is good because like a teacher, it helps us to see our need for grace and where we fall short, but it is also like a cruel teacher because it's the cause of so much turmoil and lack of assurance for those who seek to weigh themselves against it. I remember having a conversation with a family member years ago who, along with a lot of my family, uh, we were raised Jehovah's Witness, and this family member was as well. And, and he had formally, uh, well, informally disfellowshipped with the witnesses, uh, but he still continued to hold some of their beliefs. And in case you don't know much about the Jehovah's Witness religion or cult, rather, um, it's very legalistic. And, and he continued to hold on to some of these beliefs. And one of the beliefs he held on to, I remember having this conversation with him, was built off of Jesus' statement in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, where Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And, and though we would interpret that expression as a statement of someone who is already in the kingdom of God by faith, the witnesses' interpretation of that is that only those who truly live meek lives will inherit the earth after Armageddon. And I remember having a conversation with him about this and him telling me that this is what he's basing his life and ethic and hope in, living a meek life in hopes that he may inherit the earth. And so I asked him, do you think you're meek enough yet? And he reluctantly and unavoidably said, I'm trying to be, but what an empty feeling. I'm trying to be. And I use this conversation as, as an example for anyone who hopes to escape the reality of the coming wrath of God upon sin and the just condemnation our sin deserves on the basis of their own efforts. I hope to be. What assurance is that? They'll be like this family member without any assurance, and if they're being honest, my hope, and the only hope that they have would be like Paul in Romans chapter 7, where they would say, in light of that, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body? Everything up to this point in the letter has led to this reality, that only those who are united to Christ alone, by faith alone, have the assurance of escaping condemnation. And certainly there are many benefits that faith in the gospel brings, but escaping condemnation is a pretty big one. This verse, in fact, is similar to chapter 5, verse 1. If you remember when we were there, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul is describing here is that through justification by faith, what was lost in the Garden of Eden when Adam sinned, is being restored by faith. Previously, mankind enjoyed peace with God. There was relationship. There was fellowship. The Hebrew word is shalom. It's, it's this massive word that means just an overall peace, in a state of peace, free from hostility and conflict. However, when sin entered the picture, peace went away and was replaced with war and enmity. Well, if chapter 5, verse 1, is the positive outlook of justification by faith alone, in regard to what we gain, we gain peace with God, then chapter 8 is the negative outlook on our justification by faith alone in regard to what we have escaped, what we have avoided. There is therefore now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ. Now, what sort of condemnation does Paul have in mind here? Well, there's three, but there's a primary and then two that are related. The primary condemnation that the believer has escaped through justification by faith is the ultimate condemnation in hell. This is really what Paul has in mind. I remember meeting a guy a few months back. He, he had just recently left a church a few months before that because evidently they had hired a, a new pastor there uh, who was more progressive, and he was an annihilationist. An annihilationist is someone who doesn't believe in a literal eternal place called hell that the Bible speaks about. Instead, he believed that when a person dies outside of faith in Jesus, that they're just annihilated. They're just gone. And what bothered this man, and I agree with him, was that he believed the doctrine of hell to be central to our understanding of the gospel. After all, the good news isn't just good because we now have peace with God. It's good news because God has also saved us from something, a certain spiritual death in a place called hell. And this is the primary, or this is primarily what Paul has in mind with this statement, this gospel promise that you can be assured on the basis of your belonging to Jesus that you have escaped the condemnation of sin in hell. But it goes even further because there isn't just freedom from ultimate condemnation as the Christian but freedom from external condemnation. The world will remind you presently, right now, when you become a Christian, the world will remind you of all your past and present and future mistakes. They will try and convince you that God could never love a sinner like you. But this external condemnation doesn't just come from the world, but from the enemy too. He's called the accuser of the brethren for a reason, because he accuses you condemns you of wrong and points out all of your faults. It's something that he likes to do. And I think this is illustrated powerfully in one of my favorite chapters in John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress. The scene is this. Apollyon, who is the accuser, is trying to halt Christian on his journey to the celestial city. And he tempts him. He tempts Christian, hey, you need to go back. You need to stop following this Jesus guy, and you need to go back to the city of destruction. But Christian won't turn back, and so Apollyon does this last-ditch effort, and he tries to condemn him. Um, The exchange is going to go on the screen here. This is Apollyon. It says, but you have already been unfaithful. Notice the condemnation in serving your new Lord. So how is it possible for you to receive any wages from him? And Christian says, tell me, O Apollyon, in what ways have I been unfaithful to him? And then he lists it. Very soon after leaving the city of destruction, you were quickly discouraged when you almost drowned in the sloth of despond. You made several wrong attempts to be rid of your burden, whereas you should have waited until your prince relieved you of it himself. Through shameful oversleeping, you lost a very precious personal possession. Also, you were nearly persuaded to turn back at the sight of those fierce lions. And when you converse as you travel of what you have heard and seen, your inward desire is for personal glory with regard to everything that you say or do. And notice Christian's response. All that you say is true. He doesn't deny it. But isn't that what we do? We deny it. He says, in fact, there's more that you've left out. (laughs) I love that. 
But the prince who I serve and honor is very merciful and most willing to forgive. But besides this, these misdemeanors were committed in your territory where I was educated in them, and as a consequence, I have grieved over them and repented of ever doing such things. Furthermore, I have received a full pardon regarding these crimes from my prince. That's the Christian's way, strategy for battling condemnation. That's what I love about this interaction is this response of Christian. It's not a defense. Isn't that what we do often? Someone comes and approaches us with something, and we're immediately defensive. But honest confession and reliance on the mercy of Christ, this is the Christian's defense. Christian knew something that we are so quick to forget. Our weapon against the accuser is not a good argument for personal merit, but reliance upon the grace of God alone. And this is the same tool we use against The other form of condemnation we experience, which isn't just ultimate condemnation or external condemnation, but internal condemnation. Certainly there were moments, I'm sure, in Christian's life, in Pilgrim's Progress, where he was tempted to beat himself up over his own failures as a Christian. But he had to remind himself that it was even those failures that Jesus had forgiven him of. Self-condemnation, as you all know, can be crippling, But if God doesn't condemn you, why would you let someone else condemn you, even if that someone else is you? This is the assurance that we have as justified believers through faith. We live without the weight of ultimate, external, and internal condemnation hanging over our heads. But Paul isn't finished because he's going to go on and support this claim over the next few verses. I'm going to break these verses down uh, 2 to 11 in three facets of the Christian life and our believer's assurance. Facet one is the basis of our assurance, which is the gospel. Verse two, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. In in many ways, these verses summarize the Christian gospel. In verse two, Paul sort of juxtaposes, contrasts the law of the spirit, which is a catchy way of describing the gospel that comes to us from the Spirit, whose object is Jesus, the object of the gospel of Jesus. This gospel, he says, has set you free from the law, referring to the Mosaic law of sin and death. So there's these two laws. There's the law of the gospel, which is grace, and then there's the law of Moses, which is the law of works. Now, we're going to talk more about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a moment, but Paul introduces him here in verse 2 as a mediator of this gospel to the believer, giving them freedom from the law of sin and death. And it's important to remember that the gospel is not just about Jesus, but about the entire Godhead, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit at work in saving His people. And we'll see that truth here. But Paul writes in verse 3 that God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. In other words, 
The law did not have the power to affect in us what it commanded of us. The only one capable of doing that is God, is the Holy Spirit in us. Only through the power and inner working of the Spirit in the life of the Christian are we able to live lives according to the law of God and walk in holiness. Or maybe to put it simply, if you want to live like Jesus, then you need to be empowered with the same power that Jesus had, which was the Spirit of God. God did what no one else could do. He did what the law could not do. He did what no human innovation or institution could do. Only God has the power to save, and only God has the power to allow you or keep you walking in holiness. But the question is this, how? How does he do it? Well, Paul tells us, by sending his own son. The father sent the son, and the son obediently came. Paul, of course, is speaking of the eternal plan of God to save his own from condemnation. Think about that for a moment. God didn't look at us. He did not look at you and, and say, you got yourself into this mess. You can get yourself out. We say that to people often, but God didn't say that to us. God didn't say to us, I gave you everything. How dare you screw this up? He didn't say that to us either. Instead, he does the most unlikely and unbelievable thing. He comes down to us. He enters into our mess to fix what we messed up. And how does he come down? Well, Paul tells us that too. He doesn't come as an angel. He comes down in the likeness, God himself, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, there's something important to understand here. Paul is not saying that he came like flesh, but not really as flesh. That was an early heresy of the church. No, he came literally as flesh, as a human being like you and me, but in the likeness of sinful flesh. He came in the flesh, but unlike us, in that he did not have a sin nature like you and I have when we are born. He was born as Adam was created, without sin. But unlike Adam, Jesus remained that way because he perfectly obeyed the entire law of God. Now think about that. Adam had literally one law to obey, just one law. Don't eat the fruit, Adam, and he couldn't do it. And yet Jesus had the entire law of Moses to keep, and he kept every single one of them. But what did God do after Jesus fulfilled this ministry of keeping the law perfectly? Paul tells us that in Jesus God condemned sin in the flesh. Though he doesn't mention it, Paul is obviously referring here to the cross. But why would God do that? Why would God come down, send his son, live a life that's perfect, and then condemn that life in the flesh? He tells us right there, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It's as if I kept the whole law, is what Paul is saying, because he kept it in my place. In other words, what we could not do, fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, God did it in Christ as he kept the law for us. And in our place, he was condemned, so that we don't have to be condemned. 
It is the righteous offering. Listen, to, this is a tongue twister here. It is the righteous offering of a righteous life in place of the unrighteous in order that we might be declared righteous and then walk in that righteousness in the power that God supplies to us through the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul is declaring here. This is the gospel, friends. This, this is what sets us free from condemnation. We aren't condemned because Jesus stood condemned. The gospel then is this, and the basis of our not being condemned, that God sent His Son. The Son came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He lived the life we could not live, and then He died the death that we deserved in order that we might not be condemned. And we receive the benefits of His life in the gospel, that's told to us in the gospel, through the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit, when He opens up our eyes to see our need for this gospel so that we can live the lives that God desires us to live. You can have assurance because your salvation does not depend on you or your ability to keep the law, but upon the righteousness of Jesus that you have received through faith when the Spirit brought you into a relationship with God. This is what Paul is saying. This is why you can have assurance, because again, it's not based on you, but it's all based in God, and He will never fail. He'll get into that later on in Romans uh, chapter 8. But this is what Paul is saying, and Paul goes on because he knows that there is a battle that still rages on even though we are set free from condemnation. And this gets into facet two. Facet two is the battleground for assurance, which is the mind the mind. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God." You know, we as Christians don't talk about it enough, but to be a Christian is to be engaged in a spiritual battle. And the enemy forces that are against us and against God are the world, the flesh, and the devil, including his many minions. And these wage war against the Spirit of God who is at work to bring life and peace to those who are in bondage, to us, to his people. And what Paul does in these verses is he reveals for us where it is that the battle takes place. The battle, he says, is in the human mind. Last week, Paul was, he was a twisted soul. He was saying, what, what I want to do in my inner being, I, I, I don't often do. And that thing that I hate doing, that, that's the thing that I end up doing. And the battle was inside of him. And, and in these verses right here, he reveals to us that he discovered a key that helped him resolve this tension. It was all in the mind. And if he allowed his mind to be set on the things of the flesh, then he was probably going to be screwing up. He was probably going to be doing the things he didn't want to do and not doing the things he knew he should be doing. Which is why he concludes that if you're in the flesh, man, you're on the wrong side. And you will never win this spiritual battle because you're allowing your mind to be set on wrong things. However, he says, if you have the Spirit and you're setting your mind on the things of the Spirit, then you will have life and peace. Friends, the battle, 
that wages against us is always in the mind, and it's for your heart and soul. That's the the treasure that they are trying to gain. And this is why Paul will exhort us later on in Romans 12. In verse 2, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed where? By the renewal of your mind. The battle is there. And just how do we go about doing that? Well, the answer is easy. The answer really is easy. It's the walking out that's really difficult. The easy part is that you have to control the messages that come into your mind, that you allow yourself to listen to and hear, and to be diligent to allow the truths of Scripture to shape your mind, to shape your worldview. We are going to talk about this more when we get into chapter 12. So all I'll say here is that there are too many Christians losing the spiritual battle because in their mind, because they're allowing their mind to indulge in worldly messages. You know, I have always found it ironic, and maybe this might be a little too pointed for some, but I've found it ironic uh, to see parents monitoring their kids and what they watch. Meanwhile, they indulge in TV shows and hours and hours of mainstream news that only ever gives you and me, all of us, a sensationalized doom and gloom outlook on the world in order to keep you afraid and dependent on them so that A, they can make money off of ads from your views and shape the way you think about the world. It is truly ironic to me how hard parents can be on their kids and what they monitor and yet freely open the doors wide open to the messages that this world sends. Which is worse, a kid watching eight Harry Potter movies or an adult binging on hours of CNN or Fox or scrolling Facebook for hours and hours? And I'll, I'll leave that up to you to decide. I would certainly argue for myself that the latter is more intentionally and unconsciously shaping your mind and attaching your mind to the things of this world and the things of the flesh and trying to pull you away from the spirit. And we are allowing this. We're willingly throwing up the towel and letting our minds be shaped more by the world than by the truths of scripture. Let me remind you what Paul says there in verse eight, that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. When your mind is saturated in this way, it's really difficult to walk in a lifestyle that pleases God. Now, Paul is absolutely, I think, in that verse referring to non-Christians, those who do not have the Spirit because they don't have faith. But this is Paul's exhortation. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And that's what we want to do. And we don't want to be walking in the flesh. And this is where he goes in the next section, in verse 9, facet 3, the badge of our assurance, the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, you, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life 
to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. There's just two quick points I want to make of what Paul is saying here about the Holy Spirit and our badge of assurance. First, the Spirit is proof that you are truly saved. Notice that Paul focuses his attention here on the believer. Before he was talking about these people who are battling, those in the flesh and those in the spirit. But now he's saying, but you, Christian, you're in the spirit, not in the flesh. That is, he's talking about the realm of the spirit. He's not saying that you're not in the flesh anymore as if the flesh is erased, but that the spirit has become the dominating power in your life now that you're a Christian. Furthermore, and this is Paul's main idea since it's connected to the primary theme of assurance, that you can be assured that you are a Christian if, in fact, you possess the Spirit and the Spirit possesses you. For, he says, if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, then you don't have Christ, and therefore you do not belong to God. But the obvious question that one would likely ask at this point is this, how do I know if I have the Spirit? And Paul gives us the answer. The second is that the Spirit is not only for the believer and assures you that you're a believer, but the Spirit gives life. The Spirit gives life, both now and in the future. Look look at verses 10 and 11. We're just kind of surveying those verses. And the key point that Paul is making in light of the broader context is this. Even though your flesh is fading, and even though your flesh is a powerful influence, there is hope for change in your life, and this is what the Spirit brings to you. In other words, if you say you're a Christian and your life doesn't change after you become a Christian, then you probably don't have the Spirit, is what Paul is saying. But if you have the Spirit, like it or not, in your timing and your way, you're going to change because this is what God is going to do in your life. We won't read it now, but you can read it on your own later on. Go and read Galatians chapter 5 where Paul contrasts what it looks like to be walking in the flesh and what it looks like to be walking in the Spirit, and then look at that as a mirror to your life. Who do I look like more? Do I look like someone who's walking more in the flesh or someone who's walking more in the Spirit? And this is what Paul is saying, that the Spirit gives life, and it's able to give life to your mortal bodies, you right now, that there is a possibility for change for you and an inevitability. You will change if you are a Christian, if the Spirit of God truly dwells in you. He will work in you. He will convict you of sin. He will lead you into truth. He will sanctify you. He will reveal to you the things that you didn't even know you were doing wrong. He'll bring friends into your life. You will inevitably change. And this is what Paul is saying. The Spirit brings life, life that brings change and transformation. If that's not happening, then you may not have the Spirit. And you need to assess, examine your life, and say, man, am I really trusting in Jesus? Have I really put my faith and trust in Him? But in closing, chapter 8 is all about assurance that the believer has through faith in the gospel. Assurance that you can live a life that's pleasing to God. In the beginning here, in chapter 8, we're reminded that there is no condemnation. And at the end, we are told there is no separation, no separation for those who are in Christ. And all this is possible because God chose to send His Son, and because the Son gave His life, and because the Spirit applies that work that Jesus did on the cross to the believer, giving them life both now 
and for all eternity. This is our hope. This is our assurance that we can bank our entire lives on and live in light of that. What bold lives can we live knowing that we have this assurance from God that we can't fail to some degree, but even if we do, he won't kick us off the team. (laughs) He won't kick us off the team, but he'll continue to love us and change us and transform us. Why don't we pray and then we'll have a time of communion together. God, we come before you and what, what hope we have in you, God, that we have this great and wonderful assurance, and it's not because of our great works or our great effort or anything that we bring to the table, but all that you have done for us through your son, Jesus, and the work of your Holy Spirit in the lives of your people. It causes in us a desire to praise you. It It causes in us a desire to tell others about you. When our lives are are filled up with your goodness and and your mercy and your joy, that's going to overflow out on other people. And, And my prayer this morning is as we leave this place today and we go out, that that joy of the Lord is overflowing. We also have this assurance that that there are people that you are calling to yourself. And we can go out and boldly proclaim this message. Without watering it down, we can say it with clarity because we know that you are at work saving people. We have this assurance that it's not about our cleverness or our uh, fancy devices when it comes to evangelism or mission. But you, by your spirit and your simple gospel, powerful gospel that saves lives. And it's your work, not ours. And we have We have the assurance and the hope that to go out there and live bold, uh, evangelistic, missional lives because of what you have done for us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.